BAM Radio Network. Often teachers say, well, I don't have time for this. I need to be teaching my children. Well, in that solution-seeking part, there's a huge amount of cognitive thinking that has to go on to figure out what's a solution that will work. You know, we imagine this lovely little setting where we'll all be making Play-Doh and pretending and everyone will be singing and joyful. Childhood is wonderful. You know, it is a joyful time, but conflict is real. Be careful not to tell the children, you know, well, you shouldn't feel sad. Hi, welcome to Body, Mind, and Child with Ray Pika. Good morning. Conflict is one of the less desirable dynamics found among groups of people. And as any early childhood professional or parent can tell you, young children are not immune to it. What's the best way to handle it? How can adults use conflict and its resolution as teaching tools that promote children's social and emotional development? That's the subject of today's discussion. Betsy, what are the greatest sources of conflict in early childhood classrooms? The greatest sources of conflicts are basically because everyone is different, either a little bit different or a lot different. And I think that one of the useful approaches to all those differences actually is a really positive attitude about the differences. So not thinking of conflict as necessarily a bad thing, but a really useful moment to build skills. Carol, is, is this what you typically see, that it's differences that cause problems? What, what are the areas of contention in your classrooms? Well, it always it definitely comes from that social arena and, you know, children entering into the social place and trying to negotiate all the typical things you think about, sharing, taking turns, who, who they want to play with today, who they played with yesterday. So all that sort of complicated social dynamic play is where we generally see the most conflict. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Annalisa, what are your thoughts? And as a parent, what do you see as the greatest sources of conflict? I see the same sort of thing. Kids are different, and it's very, they're very kid-centered. It becomes about what I want, not what my neighbor or my friend wants. And so understanding that what goes on around them is bigger than themselves and understanding other kids' emotions, not just their own. Mm, asking a lot of the little ones. Carol, we know that parents don't receive training in how to handle conflict among children. Do teachers receive such training? You know, teachers really don't get a lot of training. And I remember my first few years teaching, that was definitely the hardest thing for me. And I think so many of us, especially before we have children, go into the field with such an idealized sense of childhood. And we think it's our job to keep everyone happy. You know, we imagine this lovely little setting where we'll all be making Play-Doh and pretending and everyone will be singing and joyful. Childhood is wonderful. You know, it is a joyful time, but conflict is real. And so I think the hardest thing for me as a young teacher and what I see with a lot of the young teachers we're training now is they're so uncomfortable when the conflict arises. They're almost shocked and they just have a hard time relaxing into that. And like Betsy said, seeing it as such a great opportunity to learn problem-solving skills. You told me that adults, including early childhood professionals, often fall back on phrases that perhaps come from their own childhood, like, you need to say you're sorry, that's not nice, or let's all share. Are you saying that such phrases are ineffective with children? Yes, you know, I know that people who say these phrases, a lot of us are falling back on our childhood, or we all have the same hopeful intentions to get to a peaceful place. We do want everyone to get along, but 
Those phrases we have found, first of all, they don't make a lot of sense to young children. You know, that's not nice. It's sort of a vague term for someone who is very concrete and trying to negotiate the social terrain. And the second part of those phrases is that they're dismissive of the emotional life of the child. So they don't validate what the child is feeling, especially the situations where we want to force a child to play with someone else or force a child to say, they're sorry. We know kids can learn what's expected of them, but we can't force a child to learn kindness and empathy. That's something that really has to be modeled and has to be coached. And that's why I love how Betsy has outlined those problem-solving steps. For It makes it so clear for teachers and parents to see what we're really working on. <laughs> so, Betsy, what are your thoughts on the use of these phrases, and what are the alternatives? Well, I think the phrases come from adults really not knowing what else to do. So a lot of them are very uh, common. You hear them everywhere. Use your words. Let's all be friends. Let's be nice. As if we could actually tell people to behave that way. I mean, wouldn't the world be a remarkably different place if that was actually true, that we could just say, we're all friends here. So it comes from just not really knowing what else to do. And I find that when people have other skills and when they know how to problem solve, they have those tools, then those phrases pretty quickly fall away. They realize that they're pretty empty. They don't really, they aren't specific enough. Children need us to be very concrete. Okay. So briefly, tell us, tell us what the alternatives are. How, how do we be concrete with children? Well, I think the very first thing is, is not to ask why, not why did you hit him, which is very abstract and not at all in a concrete sense, the way the children think, they need to hear what. What's the problem? What's the problem is I need the truck. Well, children don't know how else to get the truck, so they use physical ways and they grab the truck or they hit on the head. So we need to actually help children tell us the details of what's going on, tell us exactly what the problem is. After they've calmed down and we've finished naming feelings, they're going to be able to do that. They're actually quite remarkable at being able to tell you exactly what's going on and what they need. Well, are young children capable of devising their own solutions to problems? They are remarkable. I mean, actually, the only reason that I set out with writing my first book was that I was just stunned over and over again how very, very remarkable and creative and insightful children were in coming up with solutions. And once the door opened to collaborative solutions, it would swing so wide open. I mean, it would become such an inclusive solution that it was really remarkable. And I started to jot them down and, wow, look at the child said this and thought, thought of this. And then I thought, wow, you know, people really need to know that children are very, very capable. I, I'm very resistant to the idea of the solution kit because I think that adults then rely on sort of a set of solutions, and children can think broadly than those solutions, so much more creatively. And I think not only once they come up with their solutions, I think sometimes teachers don't give the children room. They try to solve the problem if they, you know, they want to solve it in 15 seconds. But once the kids come up with their own solution, they own it. It's theirs. And they're much happier with the solution they've come up with than necessarily a one that the teachers told them to do. Hmm, excellent point. Well, okay, let's get concrete ourselves. Tell us, Betsy, how we encourage them to devise their own solutions. What does it look like in an early childhood classroom or, or even in a home? Well, the very first thing to recognize is that when children are really upset, when they're crying, screaming, whatever, when they, all the emotion is still there, 
that's not a good time to ask for a solution. What adults need to do, and they sort of skip over this, is they actually need to give children time to really have their feelings, to have a minute to cry, to be angry, whatever. And when things have de-escalated, then to say, okay, what's the problem? And really listen to, you know, I want the truck that's red, not the one that's blue, or whatever very small details that children end up coming up with. They're important to them. So really listening and then stating that back so that children, everybody agrees what exactly the problem is. And sometimes when they hear the details back, they think, oh, you want the truck that's fast and I want the truck that's blue. So we can figure that out pretty easily. So then you can then ask, okay, what are your ideas for how do we solve this? And they can come up with an idea. And as Carol said, once they've come up with an idea on their own, it's so much more likely to work and to really last than if the adult has imposed it. Okay. Now, are there other benefits to having, you know, besides the fact that it works, are there other benefits to having children devise their own solutions to problems? There are huge benefits because, of course, they're learning to communicate. They're learning that feelings are okay. They're learning that their feelings are respected. They're learning the words, the emotional language that helps them build that vocabulary and be very clear. And maybe not hit the child over the head next time, but just say, I am really frustrated. So they have that ability as well as being able to do the cause and effect thinking that's required from coming up with solutions. There's math in there. There's often classification when they're talking about characteristics of objects. There's a huge cognitive piece in there when children have to come up with solutions. Mm -hmm. I don't think adults realize they're actually missing a major learning moment rather than often teachers say, well, I don't have time for this. I need to be teaching my children. Well, in that solution-seeking part, there's a huge amount of cognitive thinking that has to go on to figure out what's a solution that will work. Annalisa, as you're listening to this, can you see the value in allowing children to resolve their own conflicts, or do you have reservations? Oh, absolutely. It's, this is exactly what we use in our classrooms all the time. And, you know, our classes are 45 minutes, so it's not like we have a lot of time, but what is taught by conflict resolution in our classroom, you know, we model that for our parents, and that totally invaluable because it helps parents be better parents. Betsy Carroll has said that she sees conflict resolution as a key element in helping children become socially and emotionally competent. So what final advice would you offer teachers and parents to ensure that conflict is seen as an opportunity rather than something to be dreaded and handled as quickly as possible? Well, I think we know that we have to build social competence early in, in children. And, you know, as much attention as the early academics are getting, without the social skills curriculum, without social competence, children are not going to be successful in future, in classrooms, and academic settings. The social competence is the piece that really carries kids along. It's the heart of having a strong sense of yourself, your confidence, and being able to negotiate and cooperate with others. So if we give children time to really gain those skills, it's going to take them so far in the future. And I think that as teachers, we need to define our social skills curriculum. And I think conflict resolution is at the heart of any good social skills curriculum that we really want to help children become problem solvers. And that when we start to view it that way, we will be able to relax a little bit when we see the conflicts. Betsy, what final thoughts would you like to offer? Well, I think that the benefits that Carol has just named are the motivating force that you can 
um, hold on to that will help you through it. But I think actually the very first step for parents and for teachers is you really have to look at your own emotional experiences in terms of conflict because you're bringing all that with you. So that often is a big obstacle for people. So you really have to examine that and think, okay, you know, what were my experiences as a child? Because those experiences and that learning of how to respond to conflict is in what I like to call emotional bedrock. And it's very hard and you have to really purposefully decide, I am committed to trying to change my approach because you have like an emotional reflex and you have to figure out, okay, what is that? What are the words that come out of my mouth as soon as children start fighting? There, that's it. All that language that Carol's talking about. That's the place that people need to begin the change process. Thank you. And Annalisa, anything you'd like to add? I think to both parents and teachers, one of the biggest things we have to get over is that to children and parents, that emotions are real and they're not bad and they're not wrong. And we know we always tell the teachers to be careful not to tell the children, you know, well, you shouldn't feel sad. You know, make sure that you acknowledge the emotion because if you don't acknowledge the emotion, there's no problem solving that's going to be going forward. So once we get past the emotions, then we can use the words and the frontal lobe. But until we get unstuck and get outside our emotions, that won't happen. And when that happens, then you become a class that's more peaceful and kids that get along because it's really all about creating better human beings, not necessarily creating human beings that know their letters and numbers and, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's not going to take them as far in life. Ah, well said. Thank you, ladies. I really appreciate your input on this topic. We need to see conflict and its resolution as learning opportunities rather than something to be dreaded and handled as quickly as possible. Thanks again for joining me. You've been listening to Body, Mind, and Child with Ray Pika. This program is produced by Jack Street Media as part of the Affiliate Nanocasting Network. Thanks for listening.